0: Hi, I'm Anna Burt, and
1: I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benita. I'm Trudy's daughter.
0: Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums, and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief.
1: The mothership, the motherload. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance and scope of The The Mother
0: of All losses. Losses. your brief today please um well apart from the fact that I'm glowing because it's um now half past five and the sun is out which oh my gosh makes this such a big difference I just want to talk a bit about the sun because is there anyone you know genuinely and I really don't want to sound facetious or insensitive that doesn't feel better when the sun's out like especially I live in a seaside city and like it's so sad 70% of the year but then when the sun's up it's so different and then everything else you know that really does have an impact on everything else I feel I'm I'm less stressed I'm I sleep better I wake up naturally I don't know I just feel better and my grief feels more bearable but then I also think that something we've spoken about a lot is um like when am I depressed and when am I grieving and how do we split that up um so I feel you know I I have such lovely memories of my mum in the sun who was a sun worshipper um the skin damage was absolutely terrible like I remember her showing me one of those scans that she'd had you know when they do the skin damage scans and I was like oh my god and then actually really realizing that I have um although I wear lots of sun cream really um have um, for the benefit of the listener a large I've got quite a lot of filters on zoom a large patch on my forehead now and I'm thinking oh my gosh somewhere she'd be annoyed at me but sitting in the sun with my mum over a cup of tea or a beer she wasn't really a big drinker but just sitting in the sun with my mum is something I have such lovely memories of and so I don't know. I feel I feel less bad when the sun is shining, but I think in general, I feel less bad about everything when the sun is shining. I just love it. Oh, 100
1: percent. Like every year I forget how seasonally affected I am. And it's not a cure-all, but it definitely makes my baseline energy push up a bit. And then when I am thinking like, is this depression? Is this grieving? What what, What is it? If it's in the spring and summer months, I'm like, I'm probably not very well because I have a, I have a bit of that boost and that factor and Trude's always used to say you don't need to know who you are to enjoy the sun on your face always really stuck with me um so yeah and you look you are glowing you are absolutely glowing thank you I just washed it so um
0: how is your grief um is it sunny up in Glasgow
1: it is sunny up in Glasgow and oh I should probably let you in on the secret that Glasgow is actually quite a sunny place it gets a really ah. yeah it's a really bad rap as being like horrible weather but I think we just say that to keep a lot of people out
0: <laughs> so it is
1: sunny but I haven't stepped foot outside today because I'm feeling super pathetic I'm not very well who knows if it's the thing or if it's just you know one of the commonal garden ills that are still available um and it's just that thing where my hypochondria goes into I wouldn't say overdrive and I don't think it's even hypochondria right I think it is just like you're ill I'm just ill I'm just ill and it's that reminder of how vulnerable we are like doesn't matter if I have plans doesn't matter if x y or z and, and also in, in, a new thing for me is like it's actually the closest I get to feeling hungover anymore that can bring up stuff of like not me trying to admonish myself, but just realizing like it's phenomenal how often I would elect to feel like this. <laughs> Crazy. Um, I think that every time I'm hungover, honestly, I'm like, why again, again? <laughs> you had this last time, you hated it last time. Everyone becomes like, a French existentialist philosopher i sure <laughs> um and as for grief like it's quite murky like I was thinking ahead of time being like it's really nice to be able to anticipate being asked the question and kind of like thinking through it myself but I honestly can't tell it's quite murky there are points where it's felt really sharp but I think it would lovely to be sort of in touch and in connection with my grief other than times where I just feel a bit on the back foot or low because obviously part of me is like, well, this could be the start. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be. I am just like a fallible, vulnerable, biological being. But it'd be nice to have, it. I don't feel like I've had much of that sort of cherishing of tone of grief recently it's been more like the kind of again quite it's it's funny you mentioned about like sunscreen and and like sun damage and stuff because i i feel like sobriety as well is like well alcohol is a major cause of several types of cancer so maybe i'm kind of voting for myself (laughs) my continuation a bit more in some way rather than just like just all round this is the best thing for me to be doing you know it creeps in so
0: Absolutely and it must be exhausting to have to think all the time. I remember the year that I didn't drink and I was just like oh when am I gonna stop I'm so boring in my head. I still think that but it was just all the time it was like a constant narrative like you're narrating your own life.
1: It really is and like I'm you know I'm an only child I'm, I'm terrible for doing that anyway but also I think like it was something that occurred to me at my first wedding that I attended sober at the weekend, where I thought not drinking sounds like a passive thing. But let me tell you, as a recovering alcoholic, it's a pretty fucking active <laughs> thing. Anyway, enough about me. I feel pathetic. I'm so excited about our guest today, Anna. Can you tell me a bit more about him? And oh, because you sent me some of his articles today, and I was just like, it's it was the thing that made me feel better reading this really beautiful writing. So please give him the introduction he deserves.
0: Me too. Uh, Okay. well, firstly, you're not pathetic. And secondly, I'm equally as excited. And I'm not going to let you respond to that. Thank you very much. Um, Matt Ortile is the executive editor at Catapult magazine and writes a column, Grief at a Distance, exploring his grief over his mother's death in the pandemic. On top of this, something that Matt has in common with you, Emily, is that um, Matt agrees that the depiction of grief in Sex and the City was a positive one. Uh, He's also written about cooking. Um, about grief and joy, about the unobtrusive constancy of grief, which I loved as a a little soundbite there, and how we need to have a word for people who have lost mothers like Widow, which I completely agree. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on The Mother of All Losses today.
2: Thank you for having me, Anna, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: How is your grief today, Matt? I just woke up, so...
2: (laughs) I, it's, well, I actually know the answer, um, but it it takes, I think, a while for it to, normally, on better days, I would say that after waking up, the grief kind of hums in the background, kind of announces itself in a very gentle way, normally, lately, um, however, um, I am finally going home to the Philippines, to Manila, where my mother died um, two years ago um, in June of 2020. So you can imagine what June of 2020 was like for everybody all over the world. No one was flying, no one was traveling. And so I was stuck in Brooklyn where I live and, you know, had to say goodbye over, you know, FaceTime. And, You know, it wasn't even the day that she passed away. It was maybe about a week before she finally um, died. And it was at a stage where her cancer had just taken away so much of her mental facility. And I'm already starting, Um, But, you know, the only thing that she could manage to say was, I love you. Um, So that's something that I really hold on to a lot. And now that, ooh, there it is, if you can hear it in my voice. Yeah. So now to be able to go home um, after two years of having had this opportunity to live with the grief in this really weird way where I had to deal with it so far away, that's why the column is called Grief at a Distance, Um, literally a physical distance. I wasn't there and I've had to acclimate and integrate, acclimate to and integrate this grief in my life. without much of my daily rhythms having changed um because of my mother's death the daily rhythms of my life certainly have changed because of the pandemic which makes things so complicated and to echo both of your points you know i sometimes don't know if it's the grief that's keeping me bogged down today or if it's just general mental health depression stuff um or if it's burnout at work you know it's so complicated and i don't know if how much I want to untangle it from each other because I know how deeply woven all of these things are in my personal narrative. Um, At the same time, I wrote my book and I published it um, in June of 2020. I published it about 11 days before my mother passed away and so she didn't get to hold that book. And so the idea now too of being able to bring copies of my book home to my family, my stepdad, who I'm very close to, um, to go home at some point uh, um, this June, I'll be there for the whole month. And then to finally have this phys- th- so many physical elements finally in the locus of that grief. There's a lot of like kind of existential meaning-making, metaphor, woo woo wee stuff happening right now. And I, honestly, to answer the question of, you know, how is your grief today? It's consistently, I think for the past maybe month after having booked my ticket home, finally, I've just been really anxious about it. And nervous because I anticipate that once I do get home and I go home to the townhouse and she's not there at her favorite chair or at her seat at the table at the dining table, will it feel more real in in in, in, in this way that I'll have to tackle it again will it feel more real in this way where the last two years of the work that I've done with my grief, is that invalidated? Because there's this like new layer of grief that I've uncovered. Or could it feel like nothing? And that's also kind of scary because, ah, does that mean then, you know, one of the things about grief that I am so terrified of too, it's like, I sometimes feel like I don't want to lose the hurt, that feeling of hurt. And very clearly talking about it now, I feel like i'm I'm not going to lose it. But you know, sometimes I feel like that that pain and that agony and that kind of that deep sadness that comes with grief, which is a natural part of it, is that something that helps us hold on to the person? I don't know. And you know, people will say, Will your mother wouldn't want you to be so sad?' You know, and like, I know that, but also I, I don't know that. And I'm, I'm rambling, but there, so you can tell there's a lot of anxiety and just like nervousness approaching this kind of big, significant month. But I am looking forward to the fact that once I get that trip over with, I will finally be able to work on the next book in earnest. <laughs> After having written in this column for the last uh, about year, year and a half, um turning my grief into content I'm like okay finally this like hurdle gets to be jumped and I I can work on the next book finally and of course who else will it be dedicated to but her again
0: <laughs> Matt I this is a huge deal going back to you know, like you know I know that you're you're kind of acknowledging that but it's just like it's probably going to be one of the biggest things to have happened since that thing happened right
2: I think so. I I think there's part of me, part of my brain that is downplaying it. And then the other part of my brain is like, no, no, no. Why are you downplaying it? And that kind of tension is maybe what's making me nervous. Yeah.
1: It's so hard to (sighs) Mm, use your words, Emily. I think grief is like a constant, um, experiencing like a kind of cognitive dissonance but it's also in your in your heart as well and I, I can hear exactly that that division and, and how our brain wants to be binary mm-hmm. you know, whereas nothing really is and I really related to what you said about not wanting to kind of lose the hurt and the agony because that actually feels proportionate to the loss I think yeah and the fear of if in any way that I downplay this or I try and move through this pain somehow I diminish this and honestly like whether you're whether our mothers do or didn't want us to be to be sad I think I think Trude's would allow me some kind of like some swooning and, and a little bit of uh, dramatics because she just knows me and I'm prone to that <laughs> but at the same time it's like regardless of kind of what they want how do we feel it's it's really confusing, and that is huge. So no wonder you're feeling the way you are. And thank you for sharing it with us.
2: Thank you for listening.
1: Our next question, Matt, is
0: how did your mum live? Please introduce us to her and tell us how she lived.
2: Her name was May. Um, it's actually it's actually her second name. Her God bless her. My grandmother also named May, uh, named her daughter. At least three names, Mary, May, Elaine. And I, th- you know, it's like, I think I remember her saying, and again, that's another weird thing after losing your parent, your mom like this. It's like, what am I making up? What is real? What, I, what do I recall correctly? What did I dream? You know, when she appeared to me in my dream, was that real or a memory? But I, you know, I think about why she chose May, that second of her three names, because her first name was Mary. Very, you know, very usual, very, you know, bog standard mum name, um, and then her third name was Elaine, and she was like, "Could you imagine me being in Elaine?" I'm like, "I don't know," and really, you know, because I only know you as May. I know you. I only know you as my mom, my ma. Um, and how did she live? She. Um, oh, the it's like hard to balance the humor and like the feeling of the chest right now, but um, thank you for engaging with me here. Um, this is feels, a lot of it's bubbling up. I've been so busy and like kind of go, go, go trying to prepare for the trip and, and now it's all happening. You get a moment to stop. It's like when you can't, you're you a shark, you can't stop moving or else you feel it. Um, but I mean, May was a very classy lady, very elegant, gorgeous. Um, I mean, that was always one of the things that her friends, my aunties, you know, would always say, you know, your mom was so beautiful. And out of all of us, she was always going to be the most beautiful one. Like we knew, like a lot of her close friends were uh, high school friends and college friends and work friends. So, you know, you can imagine this like young adult just noble symmetries in the face, dark hair, like bright eyes, a picket fence, white smile, red lip. Very often, uh, when she was younger, and a lot of pearls. She, um, I, one of my columns that I wrote was about actually kind of parsing the similarities and differences between my mom and uh, Princess Diana, and you know, just think of that helmet of like feathered, elegant hair. Um, That was very mum. And she was also just incredibly elegant, very graceful, always incredibly well-mannered. She, The kind of, a lot of things I get from her, uh, one big element of which is the kind of, the way that you carry yourself, the poise, and I learned that a lot from her. And as a young gay boy who really didn't know why he was attracted to this kind of feminine energy, this kind of very graceful way of moving, um, you know, just to chalk it up that I'm so much like my mom was such an easy answer. Like, oh, I'm like my mom. Um, But the way that she held herself in a room was very noble. And I just distinctly remember, I mean, I remember when we had the Zoom mass we're a very catholic family and um everybody was going around the room in the zoom imagine you know a zoom funeral right a zoom memorial not to diminish it but you know but this is the world that we live in now Uh, but at the zoom memorial her friends were always like she taught us how to be kind and to listen to people and to 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 be a good person inside and out to be beautiful inside and out a lot of her high school classmates I think they had a reunion at one point and they were like it was essentially I'm paraphrasing but they were gobsmacked to be like all of us look older how does May look the same how does May look younger like it is true because it's kind of you look at photographs and I've been trying to look a lot of photographs because I it's weird we don't have a lot of Shared files together. We don't have a lot of email correspondences either. So I think a lot about the archive and You know, what testament does that have to the 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 history that you know, I have with my mother and it on paper It's very little and so I I'm a little scared of forgetting everything, which is why I write about her constantly so But I'm looking at a lot of photographs, and it is very clear, you know, from when we first moved to the United States to just kind of this middle period, and then right as they, she and my stepfather moved back to Manila from the United States. And so just as time moved forward, she seemed to age backward. And it, I don't know if it's like, she just got happier and happier maybe, or just kind of really settled into who she was. and I could only echo my aunties. I'm like, yeah, no, mom was gorgeous. And they, you know, by affirming that, what they've always said is like, oh, you look so much like your mom. So it's also a compliment to me, <laughs> um, which I've always really held on to. Um, because I think, so how how did she live? She just was very beautiful, inside and out, as I mentioned. And her big kind of mo was really just about compassion and late, you know, late in life. I think the last five years, her big, one of her big things was service, service through her faith. Um, she was very active, um, at the local church where she, you know, would hear mass every Sunday or actually almost every day towards right, right up to the end. Um, when, and then everything closed down because of COVID, but you know, there were zoom masses so that makes things much more convenient actually for a lot of Catholics and lapsed Catholics like myself. Um, So she was just someone who was incredibly generous, so generous. Um, And I try to hold on to that. Um, And I think about everything that I've inherited from her, whether it's genetic or, you know, learned nature and nurture, what I've gotten from her. Um, I'm just trying to think about how she lives in me in that way. And
0: I've heard you describe um describe it as um being an echo of her
2: yeah yeah
0: and that's so beautiful and for the benefit of the listener um everyone's right Matt you are absolutely gorgeous um and the way you speak about your mother me um it's actually I just I would just like to think that wherever you are in the world if you do decide to be a parent that your child loves you that much because that is incredible um and beautiful yeah uh, oh thank you <laughs> I am um, as a as an as a fellow lapsed catholic Matt um oh well, uh-huh. hi um <laughs> I, I don't recognize you from the meeting Now, i joking um, I would just love to know um like so um so May as an active catholic do you think that that really helped her reconcile her kind of imminent death and and how have you felt like that as someone who maybe doesn't have faith at the forefront of their life?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, without a doubt, it was a comfort to her. Um, I had to take what she would say out loud in stride, you know, the sort of things like, you know, he wants me in heaven, you know, those kinds of phrases. And I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, go on, keep telling yourself that. I don't know, I which then made me feel a little bit more like, oh, am I just that much more fatalistic than my parents? Because my stepfather's also uh, very God-fearing. Um, I think more so now, and I think that gives him a comfort as well um, to think that mom's on a cloud somewhere. Um, and now I, it, it's this weird dual thing where I have gotten a little bit more fatalistic sort of. And if anything, if, any, if 2020 has taught us anything is that people die for, for no good reasons, no good reasons. Um, it's random, it's senseless, and the more that I talk to other people about just losing a loved one, there's no justice in it. The, it, it. And very often the things that we reach for in our grief are sort of palliative, you know to use that word in a particular way. Um, so I feel a little bit more like life is random you know, this is some fluke of the universe that we even have civilization, that kind of thing. And we're bringing it down all around ourselves, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but then there is this other thing where it doesn't hurt to think that she is on a cloud somewhere. That, that when I hear her voice in my head, that it's not just me summoning it or speaking with her voice or throwing my voice and pretending that it's her. You know, there's no one hurts for believing that is the case. Um, And I've always been of the mind that I am skeptical of organized religion, of deeply organized religion, and just kind of am a little bit more on my guard when I interact with that institution, being someone who's queer, particularly as well. Um, But faith is very personal and it has definitely made me rethink a lot of what I believe um, and what brings me comfort and why why people believe what they do and why a mom has always been so dependent on faith and spirituality i often think of faith as this external thing you know you often, and i think for as you know for catholics right i think it's very you know in this particular religion god is an external force you know the holy spirit jesus you know mother mary like all of that the saints they're all external forces that you look to for guidance and for them to intercede you know intercession is a big theme in catholicism and how (laughs) pray 10 hail marys and you know that time that you convinced stealing a gumball when you were five years old will be forgiven you know like it's very much a, a matter of exchange and debt and original sin and it's all very weird but if my mother was somehow able to draw strength from within herself by through her faith and religion that I can understand and that I can really hold on to because if nothing else, I believe in my mother and I pray to her. Whew. Um, so that's kind of weird and pagan. Like, my mother is my mother God. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, it definitely did help to answer the question.
1: I don't. I don't think it's weird at all. I think it makes perfect sense to me. I would join that religion, by the way. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> I'd say. But, but like specifically May.
0: Yeah. Oh, May.
1: I need to learn how to do a red lip. proper.
0: never done it without just getting it all over my teeth
1: constantly. Mac, um, you've already given us such a beautiful insight into into May I was wondering if you had a story that you would like to share with us and again the proviso of this is that it is not the story about May it is not intended as a way to encapsulate her um, in a couple of paragraphs because and, and it struck me reading your your articles you know how there's uh, there's all the words and know the words all at once so it's just a story in your own time that occurs to you that you'd like to share with us. We're all crying, Matt. It's fine. I know. Uh, I'm on mute. <laughs> Just trying to like, uh. um
2: There's quite a few. There's kind of like, my favorite mob stories are um, from our time. So when we moved from Manila to the United States, we landed in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I, I'm seeing Emily's face right here. Um, I So I grew up in Las Vegas as an adolescent. I was in Las Vegas, imagine, at the ages of 11 to 19. Yeah. So it's very odd. I mean, the thing about living in Las Vegas is that there is a suburb. And I we very much had a suburban life. Um, my mother worked in, May worked in pharmaceuticals. Um, she was at Pfizer at first. So folks know Pfizer now. I think that's one of the big selling points. I'm like, well, I got the Pfizer vaccine, and mom used to work for Pfizer, <laughs> yeah. um, and and then eventually she moved on to this other pharma giant, uh, sharing Plow. But um, and then she got laid off in the recession, and then she used to work in um the Clark County offices. So Clark County being the county for Las Vegas, um, and what she would do was translate voting materials from English into Tagalog. Um, because there was a sizable Filipino population. it's only grown since then. I think Filipinos are the second biggest um, non-white population in, the, in Las Vegas though I'd have to fact check that. Um, though in practice it felt very for very felt very much the case. Um, but what was funny about her being a translator was that and dad my stepdad made fun of her for it was like, my Tagalog is better than yours. So, um he would help her with the work. Um, and and dad's funny because he also knows kind of like deep Tagalog, like very like archaic Tagalog, and Tagalog, for all its you know, merits, often borrows from English anyway. So he would do it in pure Tagalog and um it's like old old high Gallifrey, like old high tagalog. <laughs> um but anyway, that's a story about dad, not mom. But I think a lot about those stories from that Las Vegas period, because that was really when we spent a lot of our time as a family Um, in the Philippines. I grew up kind of isolated from mom a little bit. Um, We had very specific days where I was her charge and my birth father, I spent a lot of my days with him instead. And then once she and I moved to Las Vegas, that was really kind of a lot of our, one-on-one time. And imagine a young boy going through puberty and then a woman going through menopause. So the hormones in that home were all over the place. Um, And then once I moved away for undergrad, for college, I, um, you know, having that space between us helped kind of mitigate a lot of those, help us understand each other as adults. And then by the time I was an adult and visiting back and forth, between New York and Manila, pardon me, um, between New York and Manila, uh, that's when I think we just hit our stride. Um, But I think the funniest days and also the hardest days were in Las Vegas. I remember one time, okay, finally a specific story. Um, I was home from school. And so if you guys are familiar with Krispy Kreme donuts, right? Okay, I'm seeing nods. Classic glazed bun, right? Delicious, uh, delectable, you know, just the biggest indulgence. Um, there was a box of them on the kitchen counter. And I think we had been working at it over the, the course of the last couple of days. And then I came home. I, I see the box on there. And then I open it up and there's one left. So I have it. We've been working on it together. She's had some. She comes home. I am I think I'm in my bedroom, maybe. And I hear the garage door open, her coming in. Hi, mom. You know, blah, blah, blah. No response. And then opens. And for what I imagine, well, actually, as I experienced it, no response to mom. And she just starts yelling at me. And I'm like, what's going on? I go into the kitchen. She takes the empty Krispy Kreme box and throws it on the floor. I think. And multiple things were thrown around in that house, I have to say. Um, And she starts yelling at me. She's angry. And she goes on to like, in in this heated, heated speech, I was having a long day. I had a bad day. I was so looking forward to that donut. And I left you a note. I'm like, what? I left you a note on top of the Krispy Kreme box. Look at it. There was a post-it on it. Hi, Matt, leave the last one for me. Please love mom. (laughs) Oh my God. And you know, she sulked. She had to cool off in her room. I was like, and I, you know, if I, if that happened now, I I would go out to Krispy Kreme and like, you know, buy a new dozen, like it's all yours. But I was a kid and like, I couldn't, I wasn't driving at the time and like, you know, I couldn't go out and do the thing that I should have done. Um, But it was just hilarious because We talked about that story constantly um, over the years into my adulthood to to aunties, to family members, to dad. Dad wasn't living with us at the time um, because dad would fly back and forth and spend half the year with us, half the year in the Philippines. And she, we were reminiscing about it once and she was just like, she was laughing about it and we always would laugh. And she was like, "You know, it's funny. those days seemed so hard when we were living them, but now that we look back, it's just it just makes me laugh and I hope you know that like these well, not that I could ever well, I can laugh about grief, certainly, but all of that to say, you know, I think the less there is a lesson there in sort of thinking like some of the hardest things that we as we live through them can feel so." covered in muck and heavy and hard, but hopefully with enough kind of reflection and distance and love. And we can think about those days fondly, um, with enough kind of protection from them, you know? And you know, so that's that's one story. She was never someone who lost her cool, really. Well, no, that's a huge lie. She she often <laughs> did actually. Um on paper she wouldn't, but she did (laughs) she very kind of had like a short she had very high standards my mother and look what happened to me (laughs) but uh uh, she had very high standards for everybody so like whenever if ever service at a restaurant was not great she wouldn't you know be an awful person about it in the restaurant she just kind of like whispered to me like "Mm, service is great you know like but she'd still tip you know she'd still tip 20 percent. you know that kind of thing here in the states at least where there is tipping um Or like uh, when we'd go shopping, you know, she'd really kind of hold um, everything to a high standard. Um, Or like other people, if other people are late, and I'll tell her like, well, mom, you're on time. Like, that's your standard you hold for yourself. Not everybody's like you. She's like, you're right. It's too bad.
0: So funny, that's so good, and it um, really reminds me, I remember saying to my mum, she was banging on about, you know, she also had quite high standards, and was, I think, accepting, yet judgmental, I think you can be both, mm, um, mm-hmm. and I remember saying to her, mum, if everyone was as efficient, as organised, and organised as us, the world would be a completely different place, but it's not, and we need to accept that.
2: Absolutely, and, like, we can't take on that burden, too, I think that's one of the other things, because she was she was both very compassionate and generous, but also high standards. So she had a tendency to like do the work of others. Like do two people's work instead of just one. Um we had to like remind her of that a lot.
1: Yeah.
0: As we've established Matt, you are a wonderful writer and the executive of the Catapult magazine, which I really recommend checking out. Um you're writing grief at a distance is absolutely stunning and I don't say that lightly I work in books and writing for a living and I would just and actually I'm really enjoying your book as well thank you for reading yeah I've got it on my on my kindle right here and I think um yeah there's you write so beautifully about identity and sexuality and then also about grief um and you say that you've been writing constantly about your mum recently in a way to kind of keep it that feeling alive which I absolutely relate to and remember in the earlier days for me I'm I'm further down the line I'm eight and a half years down the line now so I'm 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 actually older in my grief um but I wrote constantly to start off with and um I wanted to know what worked and what didn't work so do you find um writing to be cathartic do you find it to be useful do you find it to be kind of a necessary pain and something that you just can't not do and um and then i yeah i'd love to work, to know about that in your writing and then you know what didn't work in your grief um especially i love the way you speak about dating as well so i'd also like to hear about a bit about that
2: for sure yeah so the column i think began as a uh, a project to to I love what you say, you know, like writing to keep that I wrote it down actually on a post-it, writing to keep that feeling alive. Um, because I've been very interested in the project of I'm working on an article, actually, not for catapult, but for elsewhere. Um, I, I'm writing on you know writing about writing about grief, the you know, um, very often. When we're told, when we want to write about our personal lives, very often we're told, you know, it's good if you have some distance from the thing. And I don't, and there are instances where that's absolutely true and that's helpful. There are other points where I think, I don't know, I really want to chronicle the thing as it's happening, again, so that I don't forget um, I'm very conscious of how easily our memory fails us. And that's why I do write to Chronicle, to Archive, as I mentioned earlier. Um, ostensibly my upbringing is as a journalist, and but though I've never held a journalistic position in my life, I've only ever done operations or editing. Um, but I freelance write a lot and a lot of my writing is personal. So I've been a journalist of my own life and that is a mode that comes extremely naturally to me. And it's not that scary to me. Um, which is a weird privilege to have because I'm kind of like chronicling this hard stuff as it's happening, whereas others maybe do need that space. Um, Though I do think we should write whenever we want to. It's a matter of the question of publishing, right? Like if you're gonna share it with an audience. I know one thing, and this is gonna go into the essay that I'm writing right now. Um, My stepdad, my dad, um, he started, did he start it? I think he was a part of his anticipatory grief because he was my mom's primary caretaker towards the end. And my dad's older. He's now like in his late 70s and he had a lot of help. Um, He's a doctor. So a lot of his, you know, his students essentially who are now like actual surgeons and oncologists and everything. um, All of his, all of mom's treatment was gratis, which was really incredibly helpful. And so they were very quick to mobilize for my dad to help mom. But all that to say, he, you know, being a doctor is also kind of a fan of writing himself. There are a lot of doctors who love writing and reading. Um, It's really great to see Oliver Sacks being one of them. Um, And dad would write, he said, I write a sentence every day uh, to think of what I have learned today. Like, really? You learn something every day? Whoa. No observations, stray thoughts, quotations, you know. Um, I'm working on my dad impression. (laughs) Um, And so for him, it's just like something to get down. And like for him, I think it's a similar project of remembering. He's very much also an archivist. He has a lot of photo albums, um, which help him and mom and me in effect, um, claim our citizenship because when we did our kind of US citizenship application, they wanted a proof of a life lived. Um, so he was very helpful in that. Um, so again, for him, though that writing, it's still writing and that's important. I think very often we as working writers or people who work in this industry, in media and um, content <laughs> creation as creatives, um, we conflate the idea of writing that that it's for a public audience. And I think they're writing about grief can also be talked about in a way where you're writing for yourself. Um I'm setting up an interview with the um was it Sloan? Sloan Sloan Kettering am I reaching out to? Um but I want to speak to you know kind of group counseling places at like cancer hospitals where a lot of people have gone through what we've gone through. And uh I'm curious about what, what writing does. And I know that some grief counselors encourage, um, patients, you know, the, the bereaved to write about their grief. And I'm curious actually, if cancer patients are also told to write about what they're feeling. I imagine that's a good, would be a good practice. But I, know, I, know, I remember mom towards the end was like, do you want, maybe I should write a book. I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> go on.
1: Is that the morphine? <laughs> Yeah, well,
2: I I was like, I too wrote a 300-page novel about my freshman year, immediately after my freshman year of college, but that's not getting published anywhere, so you can do that too, Um, but not to diminish my mom's desires. But So I'm thinking a lot about that writing, and for me, I do it because I want to chronicle and to interrogate the thing, to make sense of it. In terms of catharsis, you asked, um, it's weird. I've never... I've never written for the sake of my personal release. Um, And I don't mean to posture and sound noble about it, but it's not something I totally have. That's not the first impulse, first instinct that I have. The first instinct that I do have is to get it down to paper so that I can look at it and understand it a little bit better. Um, For me, one of my kind of new sayings to myself and what I tell a lot of my writers at Catapult is that an essay is not a final answer. It's an answer for now. It's a for now answer. And if you're thinking about a particular story in your life or a particular idea or a particular kind of thing in culture and in our lives that you want to analyze and comment on, there's, you can just, you're writing the thing that you can write to the best of your abilities at this present moment. That's your answer for now. And so for me, part of writing a column about grief is that I get to change my answer to how is my grief today uh, each time I write something new. I do look at it now. When I look at the first column that I wrote for that, that was, I think, in June 2021. And I look at my most recent one, which is in March of 2022, I can see a little bit of difference in where I was but a a lot of great similarities still a lot of still a lot of consistent themes and ideas and understandings about grief um and if anything actually the earliest thing that I wrote about my grief was about three weeks after mom died and it was this kind of easy-ish thing (laughs) it doubled as a um like part of it was also used for the speech that I gave at her 40th day after her death which is a big catholic thing um and so that's funny um but what i was writing at the time was just pure just feeling pure emotion um but the kind of thinking that was happening there the kind of criticism was about book dedications um because i dedicated my first book to her and she died right around the time of my book being published so I can see a lot of what I've gone through in that time. And, you know, I'm 30, and my kind of ideal, I'm ready to go age is about 80 and thereabouts. God willing, what, you know, what will the world look like in 50 years? But I have 50 years ahead of me of just chronicling. And I don't think I'll ever stop writing. And i would certain, much sure that I won't ever stop writing about grief. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, to be sixty something and look at what I wrote when my mother died and I was twenty-eight.
0: And when you reach those different milestones in your life, how your grief is reflected back from
2: that. yes.
0: Oh, I mean, that's big. And I was so, um, I was really enamored by your writing about dating, actually, for one of those reasons was because um, I made some like very kind of, not saying that you did, but uh, it really affected the way that I dated and saw myself. And I really conflated my grief with my need. And what I really needed was my mum. You know, that's what I needed. 100%. But what I was looking for was never, ever going to be there. Can you talk a bit? about um dating and your writing about dating
2: yeah please uh happy to um so what i wrote for my most recent column was that i would tell all my dates that i uh hey i'm sorry if i seem kind of off or if i seem a little introverted my mother just died on a first date which Social scripts might say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Like, like that's scary. You don't want to scare them off. Like, oh, you have baggage. Oh, you're 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 too complicated a person for someone to um kind of fall in love with. Which I understand that logic for sure. Um, but what helped me feel a little bit better about that um that weird habit was when I was writing it down and I've been thinking about it for quite some time and I finally wrote it down and put it to words, I was realizing that I was doing that because, um, no, I did, I do it. I lost my train of thought. Um, I was doing it because I wanted to be honest. I wanted, I, I'm never someone who kind of, kind of doles out personal information and intimacies with crumbs. Like I don't, give first date a crumb I give them the whole loaf of bread and a knife <laughs> yeah and um I, I just wanted to be honest and like I was already trying to like make room for it in my life and it didn't always work though there was in particular one person who he was incredibly lovely and generous with his time and when finally you know he wanted to take a certain step I was like, Ooh, no. Um, I'm not ready, and I really realize I'm not ready. Um, and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to to seem figured out in when we date, like, this is what I'm about. This is um, this is my life. These are my goals. these are my choices. Do you fit into them? And I appreciate that. I do. I, I operate in that mode more often than not, actually. Um, because I'm kind of like, I know what my life looks like. Will you fit into it. Let's go. Um, are you coming with me to tuscanita summer? I'm going whether or not, you know, you, you're ready for that. Um, but there is a bed. So come, come to it, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, but I think because grief is so, it is this meteor, honestly, that, comes into your world and, you know, leaves a huge impact. And it really scrambles you. I had to figure out myself, um, and I'm still am is the thing. You know, I'm constantly going to be figuring myself out, how I relate to my grief, how I am as a person. Any Anyone who's like too sorted in at the age of 30 is like, oh, okay, well, let's see about that. Um, But the the thing about dating, right, is that you do want to get to know another person and see if they're compatible, if they're a match, if you align, if you have the same values, you know, like family stuff. Um, All the harder to do that when I'm still figuring out myself, right? Um, So I kind of reasoned that's never going to be a one and done answer. Again, I can only give you answers for now. There will never be a final answer. So I figured I would admit that my bereavement sooner rather than later because I knew immediately I was never under any illusion that my grief would be checked off and be done and set aside, you know, fold it three times, say thank you and leave it in a drawer or give it away. I'm never going to Marie Kondo my grief. Um, It's going to be something that's with me um, forever. And so I thought I might as well share this with someone that this is what I'm about. And, you know, a lot of people are on their own different journeys with how they understand life and, you know, confront mortality and like the mortality of other people. And so I understand that it's um, not everybody's, not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, and by extension that I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but, you know, I am at least very grateful to myself. Um, I've And I appreciate the the thought that I put into it and the kind of intention that goes behind it that the way that I live with my grief is going to be that constant question of how is the grief today? How is the grief today? Um, And I really did appreciate there was one guy I was dating right around the time when my mother died. He would ask that question. And then I think something ran out and that he decided to end things. Um, But I was very grateful for that kind of habit forming, that habit building of checking in with me. And then now I have to do that for myself. Um, Because again, this weird thing that is our unexpressed love for the lost loved one is, I don't know, that is something that I would want to lose because that's love in the end.
1: Matt, I will come to Tuscany with you. I'm just going to (laughs) put... We're there. We'll, we'll bunk up.
2: Absolutely. There's uh, there's beds in the villa.
1: I love how you distinguish things and in both meanings of the word, Matt, like distinguished and and that kind of um, really identifying things very clearly, but even the unclear things very clearly. Thank you. And I think like so much of um, dating and, and romantic relationships, there is a fallacy that is you're done, you're sorted you're somehow static which I would have to say that being in uh, the, the longest and touch wood most continuing relationship, romantic relationship of my life um, I, I don't think I've grown more than in the past sort of couple of years in terms of like um, and again it's not necessarily a knowing, it's a growing, it's like I don't necessarily know myself, but I grow myself. <laughs> and I loved the line that you said in your article specifically about dating, which was like, you know what? I'm going to be upfront about this and this will just weed people out. Because really the own, I would say one of the gifts that grief has given me is uh, a pretty great um, bullshit filter. Absolutely. And you don't want to spring things on people but at the same time. It's like, look, just honest, very quickly. I remember Uh, seeing um, a guy this was pre-pandemic so we're talking you know a while ago now but um, I was uh, on a first date with a guy kissed him and then immediately it was like let alone the loaf I was like the baker it was like here it all is because I just wanted to be like just so you know what you're getting into this is exactly where I am and I told one of my best friends and he said Welcome to dating as an adult. You're just sharing your package all the time. Totally. Matt, Matt you've been so beautifully like comprehensive. And I feel like we've covered so much in such, such a short space of time. But I was wondering if there's anything that you would like to share um, that we haven't asked you specifically about.
2: I suppose, I guess, just to everybody listening, right? I... You're tuning into this show for a reason, and it's because you are, or you, you've you've been touched by the by a loss, somehow, one way or another. And I think very often, just sitting with you both, Anna, Emily, like I just immediately you know, the minute I opened my mouth, I was already like, <laughs> I'm crying. Um, but and we turn to each other and to to people who have been through similar things for counsel and for comfort. And there's no, there's no more loving thing. There is no more generous, compassionate. um, There's no more may thing (laughs) than this kind of turning to each other, this kind of community sense of community. Um, At the same time, if you don't, have that immediately within your reach, you know, it really helps to know that this is not in all the unique specifics of the loss that you've experienced. It's not new. It's nothing. You're not the first person to lose someone, unfortunately, because that's what it is to be on this weird little world to be a human. Um, and I guess to be not human, to be, I, I, I don't know that animals feel grief. Does a dog feel grief when a? I think they do. I think that when when dogs lose their humans, I think they do feel a sense of grief. So we're you know being a living being is also to contend with death and knowing that it's how you are not alone. This has not happened before. It doesn't diminish the gravity of what you've experienced. It only means that there are so many other people that you could turn to. Um, to help you live with the loss and to and with whom you can express that, um, that love that you have for the person who's gone. Um, and I think that's why I've had such a good time here today with you both, Anna and Emily. It's like I haven't been able to talk about mom in depth like this in a little while, so I really appreciate
1: it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much introducing us to may what an absolute treasure
2: thank you for listening
0: thank you for listening to the mother of all losses podcast
1: this episode was produced by chris thorburn music by kane aris who can be found at atom collection 2 on soundcloud with huge thanks to hannah trevathan
0: if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on the mother of all losses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.